trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And hello there, and welcome to the show. Hey, whether you're a longtime wrong thinker or uh, tuning in for the very first time, glad to see that you are part of my audience, and I'm going to try to make it worth your while today. I've got a lot of uh, very topical stuff going on here, hopefully insights that you're not going to be getting from other sources. I mean, you, you might find them, but... I want you to know, and I'm not I'm not trying to play victim here, I'm not bragging either, but I spend a fair amount of time every single day pouring over lots and lots of information, different data and content, trying to find stuff that helps make sense of the world around us, but more importantly, helps us better our understanding so that you and I can make the difference that we were born to make. I know it sounds lofty, even to me, it sounds like, well, that's kind of a lofty goal, but there it is. Our show is brought to you in part by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, Monticello College, and also Rio del Sion Home Lots. You'll find contact information for each of these sponsors in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So uh, yesterday was, of course, uh, kind of a big day in the radio world in that uh, Rush Limbaugh, uh, his death was announced. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to rehash what I talked about uh, yesterday in my show. Um, like him or hate him. There can be no argument that Rush Limbaugh was an absolute revolutionary when it came to radio. He revitalized AM radio. He vitalized talk radio. He actually spurred um, civic engagement for a lot of people, even if those people didn't necessarily agree with him. And by the way, that's, that's kind of where I found myself eventually. I started out, you know, hanging on every word, but there came a point where I evolved beyond him. And I'm still very grateful, though. Because that was the guy who put me on the path to thinking for myself. And, and I guess my point here is to say, the day, when the day comes that you outgrow me, I'm going to be proud of you. I'm not going to be disappointed or feel jilted like, hey, what do you mean you don't need me anymore? That's the point. The whole point is find your own voice, find your own message, cut your own trail. Now, Rush blazed a very serious trail for those of us who followed. And not everybody went exactly the same direction. And I don't expect you to go the exact same direction that I'm going. But I'm here to, uh, to hopefully help you in your journey to find your voice and your message. Here's the thing, though. We communicate ideas through language, and yet our language is becoming corrupted to the point of becoming meaningless. And a good example of this was as soon as I posted something on Facebook about, hey, here's what Rush did for my thinking process. And I tried to keep it as neutral as possible in the sense that, and he was owning libs every day, every day. You know, no, I, I didn't really care about that part. But uh, it, it brought out some of the perpetually offended who uh, said, well, everything he ever did or said was racist or sexist. And man, I'm telling you, they were ready to fight to the death because... Everything is racist. Everything is sexist. And I'll grant you, there's some things he said that, you know, looking at it, I can see how people would say, well, that was insensitive. But I don't for a minute believe that a guy gets to where Rush Limbaugh got by being a hateful, despicable person. Yeah, he rubbed some people the wrong way, and I think mainly because they were unable to answer 
the the things that he brought up and because he was unapologetic about bringing him up you know weaponized guilt is this amazing thing when when someone invokes that uh, that cultural marxist you know slave owner oppression and victim uh, relationship you're supposed to feel bad and do whatever they say that's the whole point of weaponized guilt it's not manners it's it's fascism you know masquerading as manners but it's not really just manners because manners come from a, a voluntary, persuasive standpoint. You, you treat people because you recognize the inherent value in people, not because they're angry at you and demanding, you will think this, you will say this. But the problem is our language is becoming, uh, well, it's, it's, it's becoming a, a corrupted medium. And I'm not sure what to do about that. Now, Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, Referenced building America's Tower of Babel. And I think he has a point here worth considering. He says, in C.S. Lewis's novel about totalitarianism, that hideous strength, we find this line, and I'm, this is Latin, so I'm going to butcher it. Qui verbum de contempserunt is alferetur etiam verbum hominis, which translates, they that have despised the word of God, from them shall the word of man also be taken away. Now, this line occurs in a passage during which an elite who dreamed of making themselves masters of mankind find themselves under the curse of Babel, unable to speak anything other than gibberish. George Orwell also addressed the dangers of mangling a language into meaninglessness, writing, If thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. And he vividly demonstrated this idea in his dystopian novel, 1984, writing that the government of Big Brother has declared, War is peace, freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength, and that 2 plus 2 equals 5. In Animal Farm, Orwell gives us another example of twisted meaning, and all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Now, these verbal gymnastics are what Orwell called doublethink, which involves the ability to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies, to hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them to use logic against logic to repudiate morality while laying claim to it. Now, Jeff Minnick says we may smile at war is peace or two plus two equals five as absurdities, but such examples of doublethink and doublespeak are now commonplace in America. Consider, for example, politically correct, a phrase in circulation for years now. But what does it really mean? Are we unaware that it smacks of totalitarianism? Since perceptions regarding politics and culture change today as frequently as the weather, how do we know when or if we are politically correct? He says more than any other phrase, politically correct explains the fear and silence on our campuses and in our workplaces. Give voice to an unpopular opinion, slip up and utter a banned thought or word, or have someone quote you out of context, and a social media mob may well hunt you down and destroy your reputation and your life. In Orwell's book, Big Brother's Thought Police pounce on such offenders. In our age, the assailants are all eager volunteers. Minnick says other terms in common usage have equally empty or contradictory meanings. Was the January 6th riot at the Capitol an insurrection? Well, that's hard to fathom, considering the billions of dollars in property damage last summer were supposed to be the result of peaceful protests, not riots. Or consider systemic racism. Is it countered by uttering Black Lives Matter? And if black lives really do matter, 
To the members of that organization, he says one wonders why they aren't working to bring law and order to the streets of cities like Chicago and Detroit, where the black casualty lists run into the dozens every week. What about a biological man claiming to be female? Does he have the right to demand he be addressed by made-up pronouns? Minnick says in that hideous strength, those seeking to transform the world employed euphemism to hide their final objectives, as the organization leading the totalitarian takeover is the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, or the NICE. In 1984, the Ministry of Truth is a propaganda organ for the state, and the Ministry of Love, the place where the thought police interrogate and torture dissidents. Minnick says some of our politicians indulge in these same antics. Google Truth Commission USA and you'll find many commentators telling us we need to have the truth filtered to us. Member of Congress Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez advocated for such an organization to sort out what she regards as misinformation, meaning viewpoints antagonistic to her own. The ongoing assault on language is corrupting thought in this country and twisted thoughts and words are corrupting our politics and our culture. But here's the good news. Over the past four years, sales of 1984 have skyrocketed, with the book often appearing as a bestseller at outfits like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. He says some of us are surely making connections as the prognostications of a 70-year-old novel rather in our situation today. But in the last six months, he says many of us from across the political spectrum have awakened to the dangers of the merger of big tech, corporations, the mainstream media, and government. We see the erosion of our liberties, our rights, our opportunities, our traditions. And more than ever, millions of us who belong to none of these power groups are aware we are being played, treated as pawns in a game game rather of global chess. So now that our ears have opened as well as our eyes, we can hear and identify the voices of Babel. Forewarned is forearmed, as the old saying goes, and Jeff Minnick says against the cant and deceptions of our age, let's keep the weapons of truth and common sense close at hand. Now, I'm going to add one addendum to this. I agree. Understanding the meanings, making people define their terms. I know it sounds like kind of a jerk move. Well, can you define your terms? But that's what keeps you on the same page, or at least that's what gives you at least some kind of common ground from which to understand something. Otherwise, you just end up talking past one another. But even more important than this, we should never, ever lose sight of the fact that that is another human being that you're engaging with, whether it's online or in person. That's a child of God. That is a soul of infinite worth. And we would do well to remember that, no matter how engaged we may be on a particular issue or topic. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder, every article, every story that I reference in my show, I put a link in the show notes to uh, help you find additional reading material. So it's worth your time. Trip on over to thebrianhydeshow.com. Check out the show notes. If you're, if you're really serious about you know studying some things out or at least having access to some of the different uh, information and content aggregators, I have a wonderful page on there called Resources for Wrong Thinkers. And these are some of the sources that I have come to rely on. I'm not telling you that if they say it, I believe everything. I'm just saying they get it right more often than not. 
And that means I'm not just, you know, hopefully, hopefully I'm not just, you know, repeating or rebroadcasting, you know, uh, platitudes or bumper sticker slogans. I like to think we're taking it just a little bit deeper and focusing on the principles more so, more so than the partisan concerns. I don't know how serious you, uh, you take your privacy, but have you ever asked yourself, what is my privacy worth? I have a sneaking suspicion most of us would probably say, well, it matters. But when it comes time to putting that into action, a lot of us don't really want to put in the time, effort, and sometimes expense to protect ourselves. And I mean particularly as, as it pertains to our online activities. John Stossel has a great article about NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden and how Edward Snowden makes the case for taking that Internet privacy a little more seriously. Stossel says, I love my digital devices, but people keep telling me to worry more about my privacy. Encrypt your emails, drop Google and use search engines like DuckDuckGo that don't track us. And he says, I probably should, but I don't. I'm lazy. And I like that web companies know me and show me things I'm interested in. I like that they display restaurants near me. Well, you don't understand the way that the system is being used against you, says whistleblower Edward Snowden. This is in the new video done by John Stossel. Now, Snowden is in exile in Russia because he revealed how the NSA spied on us and then lied about it. By the way, that's National Security Administration or National Security Agency. I don't know which. Anyway, it's Big Gov, the spies. He says, I should care more about what companies like Google and Facebook know. But John Stossel asks, why? John Stossel says, I figure that teenage boy across the street could be picking up stuff I send. The cork's out of the bottle. What difference does it make if media companies have it? Snowden replies, they're trying to shape what you believe. Now, John Stossel says, I don't feel very threatened. Amazon and Facebook want my money, and to get my money in a free market, a company must give me what I want. That's a good thing. Now, Snowden says, but when we talk about the free market, we presume open competition. I don't believe this. And Stossel says he may be right. Perhaps big Internet companies are now monopolies, so dominant that we can't leave them if we don't like what they do. But the experts also called IBM, AOL, and MySpace monopolies immune to competition. Whoops. Still, he says, today's social media companies are powerful enough to do real damage. Snowden says Facebook ran their own psychological studies on the current population to see if they could make you angry. Well, guess what? They succeeded. Companies like uh, uh, Snowden fears actually what companies like that will do with that power. He says it's going to be for their advantage. It's going to shape laws. It's going to be shaping elections. Companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Google say, hey, we won't do that. Although there's evidence they already have. Facebook hid the New New York Post's reporting on Hunter Biden. And these companies also promise to protect our privacy. They say they don't just give information to the government, but they do. And our government routinely forces them to turn it over. Why is it so much worse that our government has it? Stossel asks Snowden. And Snowden replies, well, Google can send you a different pair of shoes on the basis of what it knows about you. But they can't put you in jail. They can't bomb you. The government can. Now, Stossel says it's creepy that former Google chairman Eric Schmidt said, if you have something that you don't want anyone to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Snowden points out that this suggests that we should constrain our intellectual curiosity because someday we could be judged on it. But the question is, who decides what is normal, what's acceptable? In a free society, we are allowed to be different. Good point. So Snowden advises people to encrypt their phones. 
Your phone tries to reach this other person wherever they are in the world. It has to go through a st- the Starbucks you're sitting at, through an Internet service provider, through a data center. At any one of these points, anyone sitting on that line can snatch a copy of the conversation. WhatsApp won customers by offering encryption that prevents that. An encrypted message cannot be unlocked without a mathematical key, explained Snowden. That defeats mass surveillance. But then Facebook bought WhatsApp, and later Facebook announced it will share WhatsApp data, and customers fled. Snowden says fewer and fewer people use plain voice and plain SMS. Now they're using encrypted messages like the Signal Messenger. And that makes it harder for government and companies to learn so much about us. Everywhere you go, everything you do, everyone you interact with, and everything you're interested in is being collected and recorded and analyzed and assessed. And we don't know how that's being applied yet. But we do know once, we have the, once they have this information, we can't take it back from them. Man, let that sink in for just a moment. Stossel concludes his column by, saying, by asking, DuckDuckGo, anyone? Now, recently, I have made the switch to DuckDuckGo. I've also joined a number of my friends on the Signal app. And, I, you know, I don't know if it's a panacea. I've heard some people say, well, you know, the very same uh, back-end technology that supports, you know, your regular old messaging apps and social media is also being used to support uh, Signal. I don't know. But there is something about the way that uh, that we are all being watched and everything we have ever, you know, posted online is now being scrutinized. Was it insensitive? Was it uh, awful? You know, they, people are looking for reasons to come around and destroy you, to sick the Twitter mob on you. So maybe it is time to start taking these things a little bit more seriously. I'd like to talk to Ammon Bundy. I spoke to him a few weeks ago about his organization, People's Rights. And I got to say, Ammon is, is pretty effective at getting people organized. And, and some people, you know, I mean, the L.A. Times had a recent hit article that's just, oh, my goodness, he's organizing a, an Uber-style militia, meaning it's, it's an app where you can send out a message and you can have people show up to support you. The militia will come and support you, you know, just like you would call an Uber. And somehow they think that's a terrible thing. As opposed to, you know, government should just pretty much have its way with you, and I guess you're just supposed to, you know, somehow learn to lie back and enjoy it. I don't think so. But it wasn't very surprising to hear that some of the phone companies, and I think it was AT&T and Verizon, I don't remember who else, uh, some of the uh, cellular providers were blocking messaging between members of people's rights. And so Ammon and those who are working with him went ahead and shifted all the messaging over to Signal, and they tell me that it's working great. At least that's the emails that I'm getting. They're saying that uh, that's working out well for him. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like Chicken Little here, but it just it feels like we are having to uh, conduct ourselves as though we were organizing the Underground Railroad or organizing the resistance in Nazi-occupied Europe. Because we're having to do these measures and countermeasures to make sure, can we still speak securely? I mean, what's it going to be next? Are we going to be, you know, clicking out codes, you know, to to communicate to each other? Are we going to use code words, phrases? The chair is against the wall. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on right now in our world that is extremely dystopian. And, uh, you know, when I think about privacy online, I think a lot of us, myself included, Take it for granted that, well, I got nothing to hide, man. There's, you know, nothing going on here that I would be afraid to read out loud in a courtroom. But that's really not the point. The point is, 
Why would people be spying? Why would uh, government be vacuuming up all this information in the first place if someone didn't intend to use it against us at some point? It's, it's not a proper function of government. So, this is my call to at least consider taking these things a little bit more seriously. I think that's something that I will be doing as well. I've been taking baby steps, but I think I'm ready to, uh, to step up my efforts because I'm not sure I really like the direction things are headed at the moment. And yet I still want to speak freely. I still want to communicate with my like-minded, liberty-loving friends. We may have to do things a little bit differently. Got to be open to that. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out. Rio Del Sion Home Lots. This is one of my sponsors, and if you are one of the people, and there's a lot of folks right now relocating all across the country, if you are thinking that uh, Utah is where you're thinking of relocating, particularly if you have an eye towards southern Utah, you should really come to my webpage, thebrianhideshow.com. In the show notes for today, February 18th, click on the sponsored link to Rio Del Sion Home Lots and just take a little virtual tour. Some of the most beautiful home lots in seriously one of the most beautiful corners of a state that has an overabundance of spectacular scenery. This is just outside Zion National Park. I'm not going to say much more about it other than if you're thinking of making a move here, if you're thinking of building a home when you get here, and if Southern Utah is on your list of possible places to go, you should probably check this out. I think you'll be very happy with what you see. And uh, by the way, when you get that home built and you're sitting back in those views alongside the Virgin River and just outside of Zion and admiring, you know, everything within, uh, you know, your, your circle of vision, you know, call me up sometime. I'll bring a housewarming gift. I'll come congratulate you on on your great fortune. So I wanted to share with you this article from Kent McManigal that addresses something that I think a lot of us have struggled with or maybe struggling with right now, and that is it's a very common dilemma for people who've started thinking for themselves as to how do we manage our desire to share what we know with others. I mean, this comes down along the lines of, you know, once a man has been warned, it becometh him to warn his neighbor. If you knew that there was a dam up the canyon from town that had cracks or that water was starting to come through, and you knew about it, you'd want to warn your neighbors. You'd want to tell them, hey, we've got a problem here. This is something we should probably look at. But how do you do it? What's the best way to share what you know with others without making them feel like, oh my gosh, here he comes again. He's going to force feed this to me. I mean, is it a good idea to chase people down and then rhetorically wrestle them into acceptance? I'm thinking maybe not, having tried that approach, and (laughs) it doesn't work like you think it would. Ken McManical has some great ideas about how to share what you think is important without becoming an ideologue. This is what he says. He says, when something is important to you, you want to share it. And if other people don't understand it, you want to explain it to them. You want others to like and understand it as much as you do, whether it's a skill, a hobby, a religion, knowledge, or just an idea. He says it's why, beside the remote possibility of making money, people write books and make movies. 
He says, it's why I write these weekly columns and blog daily. And it's also why I try to help people around me when they ask for my help. Now, he says he's answered their questions on primitive survival skills, gold and silver and Bitcoin, guns, pets and liberty. And if I don't know an answer, he says, or I don't have an opinion, I say so. Now, Kent McManigle says it's a good idea to make sure you keep your own limitations in mind. There's no point in trying to explain or demonstrate more than you actually know. And you also need to wait until your help is wanted rather than forcing it on anyone. Force isn't helpful, he says, even if your intentions are good. And this is true with physical intervention, but also with your ideas. No matter how enthusiastic you are, it does no good to chase people down to share your excitement with them. They'll resist. Instead, he says, let them come to you. When you put anything on the Internet, for example, it's there as long as the Internet exists, and this may turn out to be forever. That could be a bad thing if you made some unfortunate TikTok videos, but it does mean your shared knowledge will be there for anyone to find when they're ready. This includes email exchanges or other online discussions. He says, I've had a few people write to me years after we had an exchange to tell me that they thought I was crazy at the time, but eventually came to agree with me. Sometimes it was someone who had read a debate without participating. There are probably a few who go the opposite direction, too. Now, Kent McManigal says your views may change over time. If not, it could be a sign that you have an ideology instead of a working mind. But he says, go ahead. Share the things you know best, the things you think are important. Share them with willing individuals when they are open to receiving what you're sharing. It'll probably make your life and the lives of others better, and if it doesn't, maybe you need to re-examine your interests. I really love his point about your views should change over time, or they may change over time. I don't think he's saying that they, you know, if they don't, but, but I'm going to ask you this. Are you the same person today that you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago? How about five years ago? I'm probably closer to the same person I was five years ago than I am to the person I was 20 years ago. But absolutely, I have changed. I'd like to think I've grown more than just in, you know, physical size and girth. But, you know, I've, I've, I hopefully have, have built my uh, understanding of the world as well. And I also leave open the possibility that there's more changes coming as I apprehend and assimilate new truth into my life. Because I want to have a working mind rather than just being an ideologue. And, and I want to define ideologue just for the sake of those who are like, okay, what exactly does that mean? The ideologue is the person for whom life is all about one central idea. And we all know people who are like this. And, and frankly, maybe I fall into that category in certain areas. You know, Brian, you always seem to talk about liberty or you always seem to be talking about freedom or limiting government or natural rights and this kind of thing. Um, in that sense, yep, it's, that pretty much underlies how I see life. But there are other ideologies and, and there are other ideologues that uh, maybe aren't as productive. Okay, let's take the tax protester, for instance. And by the way, if you agree that, or if you feel that taxes are, you know, are theft, if you think that uh, the government really has no right to take from you what you have earned, that you never gave your consent, and that the IRS code is, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of mumbo-jumbo intended to just keep a thumb on top of you rather than do anything meaningful, I wouldn't disagree necessarily. But have you known people who were tax protesters to where that's really, that's, the, that's the, the filter through which they see life? 
And I've seen people who are like this regarding vaccines, uh, regarding home birth, regarding homeschooling. And by the way, it goes to the other direction as well. The people who see racism and sexism and everything, they are ideologues as well. They're just, you know, hyper-focused on racism. How unfortunate. You know, they could be actually doing something good, but, you know, everything is racism, and that's, that's how they see the world. My point here is not to, to make them out as fools. I'm sure they believe deeply that what they are concerned about matters. And, and here's something else, and I, I was kind of slow to realize this, but when you look at someone who is really, truly angry, and I mean, like, take the most inflamed, wound-up social justice warrior that you can think of. It's not stupidity, and it's not that they're evil that drives their thinking. Now, they could take it to stupid or evil ends. Sometimes that happens. But typically, if you were to sit down with them, if you could have the conversation and ask them, hey, what has happened in your past that has caused you to to take such a strong stand this way? And I mean, really listen. Like, I'm not here to change your mind, but tell me what happened. You will find, you know, even if they say initially, there's nothing happened. You know, know, most people will reflexively say, no, nothing is wrong. But if you give them a chance to speak, I can promise you, almost without fail, they will relate to you at some point something that they personally witnessed or experienced that created legitimate pain for them or for a loved one. uh, the, The bottom line is, there's usually something that they experienced that shaped their thinking. And once you understand that, again, it doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean that, well, I guess they're right. So here, you know, let me bow my head and you can start whipping me for, for my sins, for my privilege. But just know that they're coming at it from a place where there was, there was real pain behind it. That's hard to remember when someone is angry at you. And that's, that's hard to remember when someone is, you know, dressing you down and taking you to task, particularly, you know, on some public social media or otherwise. It's hard not to want to fight back. But I offer this bit of advice, unsolicited as it may be, for those who are serious about, if you want to have impact in the lives of people, including those who think very differently from you, going the brute force approach wearing them down, out-arguing them, or, as I put it, rhetorically wrestling them into submission is not the way to do it. It's like Kent McManigal said, let them come to you. Don't go chase them down. And when you speak the truth, you need to speak the truth with love, which can be hard to do, especially if they come to you angry. But having put this into practice, I've had several years now to experiment on this approach. When you lose the need to win, when you speak to people out of a sense of love and genuine concern and really wanting to understand where they're coming from, you do have impact. Even if they don't agree with you in the moment, they may still vigorously, well, I still think you're terrible, I think you're racist or whatever. Let them say what they will, but let them come to the truth on their own accord. It's really that simple. By not trying to beat them into submission or, you know, show them up or win, whatever the discussion may be, you allow them to preserve their dignity. You allow them to preserve their, you know, their own personal integrity. And you'd be surprised how many times they will look at what you had to say. And if there's substance to it, they may actually come around to your thinking, even in part. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. I do want to mention Monticello College. Next week, I'm going to be talking with the founder and president of Monticello College. Uh, Shannon Brooks will join me for a quick interview. We're going to talk about Georgics which is something I don't guess many people have heard of. And, and it's not so, Shannon and I are going to get together and have a very highbrow conversation, you know, with Biff and Tad and the rest of the boys at the country club. No, this is a, this is a part of education that sadly has been shelved in favor of more pressing concerns like uh, critical race theory and intersectionality and, you know, otherwise uh, teaching the kids about climate crisis and so forth. One of the things that you're going to learn, though, is that Georgics which goes back to the ancient Greek poet Homer, Georgics has a lot to do with self-reliance. It has a lot to do with, with the cooperative arts, gardening, raising livestock, building things for yourself, feeding yourself. And that sounds quaint, right? Because we all, you know, most of us live, you know, within easy driving distance of supermarkets and restaurants. And, you know, we have Amazon. We can order all this stuff to our doorstep. We can go get it ourselves. But I maintain there's a huge disconnect for most people about where food comes from and what it takes to really feed yourself. If you had to eat based on your own efforts, how long would it take before you were hungry and complaining? All right, so I'm, I'm on a bit of a self-reliance kick. Yes, I'm going there. I've beaten this drum for personal preparedness for a long time. And as much as I've tried to persuade others to take their self-reliance seriously, There is nothing like a good object lesson to demonstrate why these things matter. found an article from the Bionic Mosquito that uh, covers some of what's happening in Texas right now, and it turns out this is a huge object lesson for anyone who's paying attention. Just in case you weren't, uh, you know, aware of it, the uh, weather has really impacted the people of Texas. This is uh, Tyler Durden writing for ZeroHedge.com shares this article from the Bionic Mosquito. Mosquito. It says up to 15 million Texans, 15 million, I'm sorry, I just want that number to sink in, remain without heat and electricity as temperatures across the state are well below freezing. Another round of winter weather is battering parts of the state uh, as of yesterday morning, as many Texans have been without electricity since Sunday, and now they're desperately scrambling to find shelters. Weather-related deaths have already been reported as one of the nation's wealthiest states can barely supply electricity to its residents. And some of those residents have written to share their painful realities. These are quotes from just a few people. One of them says, my house is now resembling a refugee camp. Yeah, these are all my friends, but crazy because they all have young kids. Hence, I'm escaping the chaos. What's insane is that big swaths of the population in surrounding areas are without power and water supply. Bottled water is flying off the shelves. Stores are about to run out. So much for the Green New Deal. All our turbines and solar don't work now in the freeze. LOL. And this person says, I live behind. I live in an area behind a major hospital, so I'm thinking that's why my grid has been up and running this whole time. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But that's exactly what's been happening. I've got I've got a very good friend down in the Dallas area, and I've been checking on him. And you know, I got to say, he's making the most of it. He sent me a picture of himself, stocking feet, propped up in front of the fireplace, reading some Ayn Rand. And I'm like, okay, that actually doesn't look so bad. <laughs> I'm a little jealous. If truth be told, if the electricity would go out for a while, I definitely would be getting some more reading done. But the bottom line is, for a lot of people, they're finding out that 
All those conveniences that were so easy and taken for granted can disappear very quickly. Now, back to the article here. The unprecedented polar vortex split, dumping Arctic air down to the Gulf of Mexico, resulting in frozen wellheads that impeded the flow of natural gas to power stations, triggering electrical shortages as demand overwhelmed the grid. By the way, there's another aspect of that, too. And my understanding is that uh, part of the reason the Texas electrical grid, which is actually three different grids, they have their own, and then they have two others that are connected to the outside world. But before they could generate more electricity, the power plants have to get the permission of the federal government because, well, that's going to increase pollution. So, you know, hey, I know you people are freezing to death, but, uh, you know, we got to protect the climate here. I'm sorry, I would put a higher priority on let's keep people alive through this cold snap and worry about the, the pollution later. We're not talking about doing this, you know, every day, even throughout the summer. Nonetheless, considering ERCOT, which is the Texas uh, electrical company, which manages 90% of the state's electric load, has a high percentage of electrical generation produced via natural gas, power has yet to be restored to millions of folks. Still on Wednesday, the power grid operator warned 40% of generation capacity remains offline. And the pictures that are coming out of Texas, I'm looking at one right now of downtown Austin. And the crazy thing about it is you can see very large swaths of the the surrounding um, city are dark. And yet there's municipal buildings, empty office buildings, even empty parking garages all fully lit up. Some places have electricity, many don't. By the way, this this isn't just about, you know, well, so the power goes off, you know, pull some blankets up and, you know, enjoy the time. You have to understand that cascading effect of blackouts and controlled power outages is also affecting other critical infrastructure like cellular networks and even water treatment plants going offline. Oh, yeah, you're going to have to uh, boil your water for a while. Is that a problem? Well, let's see. Let me flip the stove on. Oh, I got no natural gas and I've got no electricity. What will I do? The point of this article, which is linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, is to show the speed at which one of the nation's wealthiest states transforms into a third-world country. It's stunning. And there's a drone pilot down there by the name of Jared Tennant who has published stunning images of how downtown Austin's been lit up during the power grid collapse while surrounding and particularly more impoverished communities on the outskirts of town have had their power cut. A lot of pictures here showing this. One reader wrote in and said that Central Texas looks like a refugee situation of sorts. I mean, they're legitimately concerned. This is becoming a humanitarian issue. And here are some of the anecdotal accounts of what this person is seeing on the ground, which is nothing short of a disaster in the making. They say Central Texas is looking like a refugee situation of sorts. Suburbs with power have homes with 10 to 15 to 20 people piled into living rooms with sleeping bags. Hey, COVID warriors, how, how does that strike you? That's, that couldn't be sitting well with, with some of the health officials. Increasingly, whole zip codes are being hit, not just with power outages, but with water systems going down too, either through frozen or electrically damaged processing facilities or key pipes bursting. Anyone without power or water now going on two or three days is begging any family or friends in the area still with power to take them in. Multiple families are camped out in living rooms of those who still have power. Families are dropping off young children in residences and with neighbors that still have heat. 
Basically, whole neighborhoods on the other side of the highway with no power are moving in to neighbors' homes on the other side where power still exists. This person says, I'm getting phone calls from friends and elderly people in the community asking desperately for firewood. Yeah, people are running out of firewood. And a couple of grocery stores actually open for a few days are constantly out. By the way, there were pictures of lines at the grocery stores, lines at the gas pumps. People are braving the iced over roads just looking for anyone with firewood. Anyone that still has water is filling up jugs and bathtubs in expectation of a water supply being cut off at any moment. And the water situation is getting really alarming, especially with elderly now trapped in homes with no heat or water. Local stores are limiting how many gallons of water a person can buy or cases of bottled water. It's flying off the shelves. In some cases, schools or churches are not officially warming centers, but people are basically squatting and entering any public place or room they can find that's warm. People are living in their work offices. And there's no recourse. There's no answer. Encore won't answer calls or give answers for days running. Civic services aren't responding. Local police departments are demanding answers from the large energy companies. A lot of people are starting to see growing carbon monoxide poisonings in the area in the state. People lighting charcoal grills indoors or running vehicles in garages. So what's the point here? Am I trying to scare you? No, I don't want to scare you. But I think you should take a look at this article, particularly take a look at the pictures and the videos. And then ask yourself, what could I be doing right now that could hedge against these kind of things happening where I am. I mean, a lot of times we don't think in terms of, well, what if the power grid went down? Or what if I couldn't get clean drinking water? But I'm telling you, people in Texas, this is not a theoretical thing. What if, what if they're learning right now, whatever their plans are, whatever their preps are, they're either in place or they're not. And if they're not, these are the people who stand to suffer and are suffering as we speak. So, be wise. Don't uh, don't put off inevitably. You know, don't don't leave it for some later time when it's going to be easier or more affordable. It's never going to be easier than right now. Get that self-reliant stuff in place. Take care of yourself. Take care of your neighbors. Take care of family. But do it now while things are still good and everything is still available. This is The Brian Hyde Show.